and welcome to Crypto Facto with Josh Clayman. I'm your host, Josh, from the global law firm, Linklaters. On this podcast, you'll hear hot takes from me and sometimes from special guests on some of the hottest topics affecting the digital assets and tech spaces. Of course, these are our personal views only, and nothing said here constitutes legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice, but we still think it's interesting. So hold on tight and let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Crypto Facto. Earlier this week, President Biden signed a far-reaching executive order on artificial intelligence on Monday, requiring that companies report to the federal government about the risks that their systems could aid countries or terrorists to make weapons of mass destruction. The order also seeks to lessen the dangers of deepfakes that could swing elections or swindle consumers. That was the first paragraph of an article in the New York Times entitled Biden Issues Executive Order to Create AI Safeguards. What's fascinating right now, and as has been discussed in many forums, is this increased focus, it seems, by U.S. regulators on matters of national security and the interplay with emerging tech and existing tech as well, Uh, whether that is digital assets, whether that is AI, whether that involves infrastructure as a service, so much. And today, we are so lucky Um, We have one of the world's experts in this area, Carol House. And if you haven't heard Carol speak before, you're in for a real treat. She really mesmerized me when I heard her speak recently about how you can't count out the Commerce Department for the powers relating to national cybersecurity strategy and the like. Um, Carol, welcome. And we're thrilled to have you here. Thrilled to be here. Um, you are overly generous as always. Thanks, Josh. Ah, thanks, Carol. Carol, I would love it if before we launch into some of the substantive topics, would you please be able to share with the audience your background, how you came into this area, um, how you became such an expert, and really, um, really what's on your mind? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Josh. I appreciate the opportunity to kind of give some of that context uh, so that uh, people have have a good understanding of maybe where I come from and uh, which might explain some of the positions that I take and the things that I say. So first, my my whole background is kind of an interesting patchwork quilt of different national security issues. Uh, first, I was in the U.S. Army uh, doing seaburn, uh, chem, bio, rad, nuclear defense, so all the gas mask stuff that uh, that nobody likes, uh, <laughs> but is critical, um, so that in case you get slimed, uh, we can keep fighting. Um, and I was also an intelligence collection manager, so my job was watching, uh, was managing all the assets that watch and listen to people, and making sure that they were pointed in the right direction uh, to be able to help our operators. Um, after the army, I um, my first tour in the White House was doing hard cyber, um, uh, really working with civilian agencies to oversee their cybersecurity posture and make sure that resources were allocated to like make sure that we were patching up the right issues um, and improve their their risk based approaches. And then I went to the Hill uh, on Senate Homeland Security and governmental affairs uh, and did some work on cybersecurity, critical infrastructure, supply chain work, Um, and then enter my transition into cryptocurrency world. I um, then did a tour over at FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, um, which Josh, I know you're very familiar with, but anyone who's not, it's the U.S. anti-money laundering regulator um, 
so basically what that means is that we administer obligations like know your customer requirements. We've also been regulating cryptocurrency since at least 2011. Um, and I, I went over to FinCEN specifically to work uh, to, I was the lead for cybersecurity, uh, cryptocurrency and digital identity policy. Um, and that it all kind of makes sense, right? Like identity, crypto and cyber all play a critical um, a critical role with each other where a lot of cyber crime is exploiting weaknesses in identity as is AML, um, crypto ecosystems certainly have had a lot of failures in embedding and building in and uh, leveraging its programmability to build in AML features um, and certainly cybersecurity issues. Um, really all these things tied together so wonderfully. Um, and then my final work in the US government was at the was at the White House again, the National Security Council, where I was brought on board by the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Tech and Newberger to really work on issues like our, to coordinate our counter ransomware campaign, as well as uh, our digital assets work and work on digital identity. So it was a ton of fun, a wonderful way to sort of end my um, uh, over 10 years working in government. And now I'm out in industry, I'm still engaged on these issues as well as others. Um, at Terranet Ventures, we're a small little VC firm. We invest in security technologies. We also do some research advising and consulting work. Um, and uh, in addition to that, I've been working as a fellow for the Atlantic Council, um, as well as uh, as well as advising Third Ways, um, which is a, a think tank in DC, their US-China Digital World Order Initiative. I'm doing work with uh, the Digital Dollar Project as well. There's a variety of other roles. And then also I'm chairing the CFTC's um, Technology Advisory Committee. If you're not familiar with CFTC, I think most of y'all will be, but it's the sister agency to the SEC, basically, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission. Um, so they really have all, have domain over all things commodities markets and futures and derivatives. So uh, that's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm co-chairing uh, our DeFi subcommittee with Dan Ari from Cornell, and we're just having a, a ton of fun looking at these issues, diving into them. Um, and all of, uh, again, all the issues that we're looking at at the CFTC, which are AI, cybersecurity, and DeFi, all really touch each other in a very interesting way. So I'm, I'm very focused on seeing um, my wonderful former colleagues and the great agencies that are doing good work in the U.S., um, as well as a lot of international partners, try to figure out how to get their hands, their, their arms around really tough issues that implicate um, that implicate hard, sometimes it, what seem to be intractable problems related to security, related to freedom of speech, um, and what is the right type of burden, and um, what is the right balance of privacy and discoverability and security that you need to have in certain internet and information and data activity, as well as um, in financial financial activity in the world of DeFi, um, a lot of the same issues or kind of the, the beating hearts of each of these topics end up having a lot of commonalities and like, um, and it basically a giant web that kind of touches a lot of them in interesting ways. So um, those are issues that are top of mind for me. Thanks so much, Carol. And for our listeners, if anyone doubted that Carol is a world expert on these areas, I'm sure you doubt no more after hearing that. Uh, the way you described, by the way, all of these considerations and technologies kind of touching each other and interrelated as a web, I think that is such a great description. Because, you know, when I try and organize in my head, okay, there's a focus on national security, there's a focus on things like sanctions and know your customer and any money laundering, you know, counter terrorist financing kinds of concerns, but then also deep fakes in AI and, and really understanding whether news is real, whether statements of government actors are real, and then things like 
um, digital assets and by whom and how and when and where they're being used. All of these things kind of come together in my head, um, but but it's hard to describe it in any way other than a web. I think you you said it perfectly. And when yeah. you look at, at, at this, sorry, I didn't mean to, to interrupt you. Not at all, not at all. I think um, that's a great point. I haven't figured out if, if someone has a much better, you know, schema or graphical depiction of it to let me know. But like webs, which which have their own beautiful art as like as spiders weave them, um, but often look like kind of a mess and have lots of different intersecting points. Um, and some things only touch each other through other nodes and intersections, but it's still it's still all connected, like you mentioned. And so that's it's the best way I've been able to come up with. But um, I know there's um, I'm sure plenty of others who've come up with that better ways of structuring some of those thinking and interconnectivity, uh, their interconnective tissue. So when you look at this, Carol, when you look at this web, do you, does anything stand out to you? Does it all form, I guess, as I'm thinking about, you know, the new executive order um, on AI, and then I think about some of the executive order, orders that you've spoken about in the past relating to um, infrastructure as a service, and then the national cybersecurity strategy. Do these all fit together for you? Or is there is there one that stands out and, and feels like the roadmap? Or how, how are you approaching this? Because even as we go to talk about each of these things, it's hard to determine which one to start with. That's totally fair. Um, and and it's a great question because some of some of the special technologies that are coming up right now, um, things like Web three uh, technologies and di distributed ledger technologies, really are enabling a confluence of different functions um, and therefore very complex issues, whether legal, policy, or technical, um, that traditionally had kind of been bifurcated. So what I mean by that is, if you think about something like the future of Web three, the the vision is that traditionally rails that had been had been totally divided, right? Like you have um, internet and information transfer rails where it's data that's being transferred. Um, and then you have financial transfer rails. You have SWIFT, you have Fedwire, you have chips. Um, and these things were separate. Um, and there's a different level of discoverability and security that you expect and demand by, by regulatory authorities, by individual consumers. Um, but now with Web3, you have the exact same rails that can support information transactions as well as financial transactions on the same rails. And with the obfuscation or privacy enhancement, you can't even tell which is occurring. Um, so basically, DLT is one of the examples of like the types of technologies that can just merge and force all these things together. Um, AI, I think also certainly it's just it's just a type of technology like DLT. Um, it all depends on how you use it and its design. Um, AI ha has been used for many years um, in things like financial compliance as well as trading inside of um, inside of financial markets, um, but certainly has been used in other systems and areas like looking for cybersecurity vulnerabilities um, uh, and uh, as well as like as well as image generation and detection. Um, so in, in com computer vision capabilities, just the the chat GPT um, democratization really of like open access to incredibly sophisticated generative AI um, did did create this greater like impetus and scare from a lot of people about the dangers that can come from AI that's just, you know, crawling all over the internet and doesn't have necessarily the kinds of protections that we need. Um, so to me, I think that they do, like, I, it's not clear to me if there's one that really rules them all, um, because even the national cyber strategy, um, it doesn't really define the future of money. Um, 
it makes reference to the role that money plays in supporting certain cybercrime ecosystems, um, for example, cryptocurrency and supporting ransomware service economies. Um, but it's not like that's not the strategy that's going to define everything. The national security strategy certainly gives really great pointers and directions from the Biden administration, um, which do cover all of these things, but it's really not terribly specific. It's not intended to be. It's meant to give more general North Star guidance. So when it comes to thinking about the, the really the, the more tactical, and I know it's hard to call 111 page uh, EO necessarily tactical, but there's lots of great content in it in the AI EO that was just published. Um, but uh, I think really under people who are in spaces who are leveraging technologies sometimes need to acknowledge or recognize that when they are engaging in this tech that supports financial and or technical um, and telecommunications infrastructure capabilities, they really need to broaden their own aperture to get educated on the policy implications and conversations across all of them. Um, the infrastructure as a service CEO that you mentioned, um, I think is a great example. Um, I know we could talk about it in whatever detail that you want, but basically this was an EO that was issued um, in the final hours of the Trump administration, um, and it was maintained under the Biden administration, um, and it's still reflected as a priority both in the national cyber strategy, um, as well as referenced a lot in the AI EO as, um, as a requirement for commerce to impose know your customer obligations on infrastructure as a service operators. Um, that, that points to the fact that there's now KYC, something that traditionally is really um, focused on the financial space um, is now being leveraged um, and being promulgated through regulations by commerce into a more infrastructure and information technology space. So there's a lot of, of interconnectivities and it really requires, um, I, I know, a very um, a lot of patience <laughs> um, and uh, I think maybe some guides and hopefully um, not just myself, but other wonderful people in government still and those who, um, those who left government can try to help point people to where some of these major policy issues are and help people navigate them. And so that is a topic that is so fascinating to me, what you just mentioned about this infrastructure as a service operator, um, potential requirements for KYC, yeah. AML, and the like. I guess it, it, it goes to the question, what is an infrastructure as a service provider? Like, where is the line drawn? What, what as a practical matter, could this capture that we might not ordinarily expect as as a party that would need to be determining, you know, identities of those transacting. Yeah, that, that's really a great question. Even though there is a definition that's in the executive order on infrastructure as a service, it really by um, it really gives the Department of Commerce a very like significant amount of authority to define um, to define the scope of like what are those infrastructure as a service operators that need to conduct this KYC on their foreign customers, um, and then under the AIEO to not only just collect KYC info but to also report um, any instances where they are seeing that some that they have foreign customers um, who may be leveraging um, AI uh, capabilities on their infrastructure services um, to conduct malicious cyber activities. Um, so that that was a place where it was referenced most recently. Um, I I think that this is this is the kind of thing where I, I know there's a lot of players in the in the Web3 DLT ecosystem who feel that they are not money services businesses or they are not financial institutions because they are just infrastructure providers. All they are do is supporting a network or um, or operating the protocol or providing underlying infrastructure that others can come in and build their applications on top of. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll first say that I that there are 
I don't think it's a one size fits all. There are there are things that certainly are saying that they're not MSBs that I might say potentially are if they are administrators of a cryptocurrency um, that meets some of the definitions under FinCEN's guidance that they've had out since 2013 and 2019. Um, but let's assume that something is actually just an infrastructure provider, um, and, and there is activity in in Web three that's not that's not financial. Um, it's very that those that those operators um, end up getting covered underneath this infrastructure as a service definition. It really all depends on how commerce defines this. And they've already issued their ANPRM or their advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. What that really means in um, just in layman speak is like that that's the kind of the request for information or the heads up to industry saying, hey, I've been given this direction to issue these regulations. Here's a little bit about what I'm thinking, but here's also some main questions that I want to ask you guys. And they were asking for things like how to define the scope and what are the obligations that should be imposed upon um, upon these operators and what effects that that will have on like burden and competitiveness and privacy um, and what mitigations might be able to be implemented. All those were listed in the ANPRM that was published in 2021. Um, and when I've looked through the ANPRM comments that were provided, there were not many really that pointed to anything related to blockchain or DLT. So uh, I, I think that it's it really points to the fact that I think that that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of players and stakeholders in the crypto ecosystem um, who, while they say that they're not financial, they're also not necessarily looking at and paying attention to the agencies then that are not financial and that issue regulations pertaining to tech. Um, and that tends to be places yeah. like. Um, it can be places like FTC um, and um, as well as others uh, and CFPB also has authorities outside of just financial. Um, practices. So I think that there's there's a need to sort of for everyone to kind of broaden their their horizon and think more generally about how their technology um, will then apply underneath potentially some of these regulations and then give input. Um, because what will come next from commerce should be an NPRM or a notice of proposed rulemaking. That means the draft regulations. Um, and that's really the right place where I think industry needs to give input into on what those those obligations need to look like, including what the scope of that definition should be. So to put it mildly, there have been a lot of activities in Congress of late that may have had an effect on the ability of our Congress to pass certain laws. And certainly within the digital asset space, we've seen a fair amount of, of a, a pretty partisan divide between certain views um, on certain topics that I won't specify here necessarily. However, my understanding from you, Carol, is that this is actually something that is really bipartisan. Um, and and that it's something that because it's part of the national cybersecurity strategy or framework that it is is likely to go forward no matter what the results of the election might be. Am I overstating that or or is that on the right track in your view? Yeah, I, I think you're definitely on the right track. Of course, this is just my own interpretation and my guess about what's happening. Um, and also, I do think that you put that very mildly, very generously. Uh, in fact, Josh, um, the, um, in, in my characterization, the very unhelpful level of polarization um, and, uh, that's happening sometimes on the Hill related to these issues um, that sometimes end up like uh, on the extreme sides on both ends, um, not really understanding the the nuance um, of this of the issues related to this tech, um, as well as the future of money. Um, so specifically on this, though, the infrastructure as a service CEO, like you mentioned, it was issued in the final hours of the Trump administration. Um, so for President Trump, 
supported this EO and, and issued it. Um, and EOs don't just exist, you know, overnight. They don't get built overnight. It, it took a long time to develop and build it. Um, but then, of course, all the, the cyber leadership um, under the Biden administration also support this executive order. They've been very supportive of it. Um, and, you know, th th there certainly have been plenty of EOs that do exist and pertain um, and continue throughout throughout uh, administration turnovers, this is an example of that. And honestly, cyber on most issues does tend to be a pretty bipartisan issue. And the birth of this EO did come out of concerns related to cyber um, in a very crude way, I'll just say, because it's a much more complicated history. But basically, when you have foreign APTs or advanced persistent threat actors, so really like big, bad cyber actors that are leveraging US infrastructure as a service operators to target and pwn Americans, um, that is not a, des a desirable outcome. Um, and that basically was the context and the background um, in, in very shorthand for why the infrastructure as a service, EO as it's colloquially called, um, came, came to be. Uh, Obviously, it continues to be reinforced as a priority. Um, and again, like I said, most most cyber issues, there's really one major one um, related to election interference that can often cause um, polarization issues um, between parties. But really, most cyber issues, including things like the Solarium Commission, um, the, sorry, the Cyber Solarium Commission, if you're not familiar with it, it was just a major effort, um, you know, driven by members of Congress, as well as experts across industry um, and, and academia to develop recommendations for what was Needed. Um, and out of that came a lot of major, major things, including uh, the creation of the position of the National Cyber Director um, and its office inside of the White House that was stood up when, when I was at the NSC. So basically our sister office doing cyber policy in the White House. So really these issues are not ones that I, that I think easily go away. Um, and certainly I don't think in a partisan way tends to go away. Um, because again, like depending on who who wins uh, the next election, um, it's very possible that whoever is in charge supported or certainly has leaders surrounded by them that are in their administration that supported this EO. So I think that it, it is something that can tend to be to, to, that can tend to survive uh, administration turnovers and why I think it's so important for industry to engage. Um, I don't think that an entire space of infrastructure providers, including those in the Web3 space, um, should overlook the fact that they're potentially being regulated um, and miss out on the opportunity to engage and shape what those definitions, including the level or extent of coverage for them, looks like. You're absolutely right, Carol. And I think a lot of times, as you mentioned, people don't, when, when they're thinking of regulators that, that may be relevant, um, particularly in the digital asset space, but beyond, you know, SEC, CFTC, FinCEN, those definitely jump to mind. OCC, others, right? Like Treasury, Department of Commerce might not be front of mind, and yet it should be, it sounds like. And as I look, just, just to hop over for a moment to, um, to the Biden executive order on AI, one of the things that stood out for me, and then after I mention this, we can, of course, go into the broader... Um, the the broader uh, executive order because I I know that you have a very uh, deep knowledge about it and also can put it into much better context than I can. But there was one part that stood out where um, it said protect Americans from AI enabled fraud and deception by establishing standards and best practices for detecting AI generated content and authenticating official content. And then it said the Department of Commerce. Uh-huh, right? We'll develop guidance for content authentication and watermarking to clearly label AI-generated content. 
And then it says federal agencies will use these tools to make it easy for Americans to know that the communications they receive from their governments are authentic and set an example for the private sector and governments around the world. Now, when I read this piece, and I, I just read that from the fact sheet, just that, that particular um, excerpt, I thought a couple of things, and I, I'd love to get your thoughts about this. The first one was, okay, I understand why we might want people and entities to be watermarking AI-generated content, but are the bad government actors and other sanctioned parties outside of the U.S.? going to comply or is it just the good actors that are going to comply could be could we be lulled into a false sense of saying oh i'll know when something on the internet is ai generated because it'll be watermarked to me when i read that i thought actually maybe i mean if you think about blockchain right and you holding aside crypto and all the promise and 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 potentially risks you know that it it may entail if you just think about a blockchain you know, one of the things that a blockchain is good at is providing secure data sets. And so it made me think maybe this is a way that rather than focusing on watermarking every single bit of AI generated content, maybe for certain important things like the statement of a president or other important um, proclamations or even news, because certainly as we've seen on um, X, uh, the artist formerly known as Twitter, there have been lots of, of debates about facts that may or may not exist, right? And using a blockchain rather to provide authentication in a world full of AI. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Carol, but I also would love to hear what you think more generally about what the important points to take away from the executive order on AI are. Absolutely. Um, and I think uh, it's a really incisive uh, point and, and insight that you offer about this interesting touch point between blockchain um, and its potential and its intersection with AI. Um, because again, these are different technologies. Um, one is essentially a way to maintain a, a database and data and um, you know record of transactions. Um, and then the other is a way to leverage lots of lots of data and create models that can like iterate and learn on themselves and potentially do um, you know analytics prediction etc and constantly uh, you know um, can enhance automation further and further to um, be able to make human-like de decisions over time and and also optimize um, its own its own algorithm so basically like these things are not mutually exclusive like you can have AI with in fact AI with with blockchains are potentially very good is also potentially very dangerous again it all depends on the design um, it, you really need to pay attention to the use case but i totally agree with you that like blockchain technology by itself was made for data integrity and auditability like it potentially i think could play a huge role um in not only doing things like maybe maintaining records um and logs of the way that ai applications are um are occurring and being used um, but also how decisions are being made um but i totally agree also that essentially the the capability that blockchain can provide to do things like combat um malign influence and to maintain records um and to maintain records that are immutable or mostly immutable and difficult to change um, 
um, make them potentially very good pair with um, with AI systems uh, to be able to combat things like foreign malign influence, uh, fraud, um, deepfake, cybercrime, etc. So I do think that there's a big that there is a big touch point here. I I do agree on on watermarking and content authenticity. Um, I am first. I'm so excited that that is a major priority in this executive order. Um, I think that driving research and development, as well as developing guidance and standards for content authentication and watermarking, to do things like clearly label AI. AI generated content, but also to do things like authenticate your non-AI content um, uh, and to, to prove that it has not in fact been manipulated, uh, which again, I think that blockchain technology can play a role in helping to do. That's the way that you combat some of these significant threats together. Um, so I I totally agree that I think that those things can can work together. Um, and, and absolutely, I expect that there's many malign actors, um, whether criminal or state actors, that will not likely um, likely participate, which is why over time, figuring out like what are the practices, the standards, the, the international cooperative measures, all of which are in the EO, um, for us to work together to drive what the administration has committed to on commitment for an open and free internet, um, and making sure that we do things like try to identify um, and, and authenticate, like, who was the origin and the source for this information and where did it come from? Um, there's a lot of potential for tokenization and blockchain, I think, to potentially be a part of this story. Um, more broadly on this executive order, I, I do want to point to a few other things, um, including that I think will sound very familiar to the blockchain listeners here. Um, so this executive order on AI prioritizes a lot of efforts on transparency and explainability. Um, I'm sure that sounds very familiar. Um, I, I'm sure it harkens back a lot to even um, a recent IOSCO report that was published that pointed to things like data gaps inside of, um, of financial crypto markets um, and issues that need to be addressed in DeFi. Um, I appreciate that. I thought it was a very, um, it was it was just a beautifully articulated chart that like we don't often see that really tries to delineate like the information that regulators need from markets, what is or is not available by their view in the system and what the challenges are. Um, uh, a lot of the challenges though, what, whether stated in the IOSCO report or implied in my, in my analysis and interpretation is that it's that they need the regulators to be able to understand um, the data. So even if the data is there, um, they need to be able to consume it and use it. So that points to standards work. It points to developments and evolutions in reg tech, et cetera. Um, the same things are implicated here in AI. Transparency and explainability are some of the most critical features that you need for AI systems, or in my view, really any emerging technologies, um, because that's the foundation. That's kind of step one for you to be able to prove and or assess a system's ability to meet all the other objectives that you want, whether it's security, whether it's equity and bias minimization or soundness of a system, um, you need transparency and explainability first. So that's something that's really prioritized and focused on um, inside of the executive order. Um, cybersecurity and privacy, um, also very familiar uh, terms coming up a lot in the blockchain world are also critical efforts that are reflected in the EO for AI. Um, you know, they they demand that developers and those who use AI systems understand and account for the security of the sensitive data and the functions um, that they are conducting or using in their AI systems to prevent their exploitation. Um, those are major, major policy issues that are not just relevant for AI, but also relevant for crypto. Um, in fact, 
huge challenges, I think, that have existed in um, not just U.S. government agencies that have lagged in implementing privacy standards um, and policy guidance that has been in place since the Obama administration. But honestly, privacy is not something that the U.S. has has gotten right, um, either on the industry side and certainly not on the legislative side. Uh, we, we don't have any comprehensive framework for for data privacy in the US we have we do have have a framework it's just a fragmented one where we have HIPAA for for, for healthcare information and we have the right to financial privacy act and leach Bliley for um for financial data etc we, we really only have privacy um sort of protections and legislation around particular sensitive use cases not on all things consumer data um and i think even in recent actions like the CFPB's publishing of their proposed rule for open banking um, and pointing to wanting to to like to more decentralize the financial system and to give um, ownership of data back into the hands of the consumers, um, that was a really interesting statement by the CFPB. When I was reading um, some of the opening statements in the press release, I was thinking like, wait, is this a crypto thing? And like, no, it's not. It's about open banking. But it was really interesting to see a lot of the same themes coming up across all these different issues that are rising right now, whether it's about AI, whether it's about uh, DeFi, um, and just general fintech and financial evolution, there's a lot of big touch points and a lot of commonalities, um, I think, in some of the policy issues that they're trying to tackle, whether in blockchain or whether in AI, um, and that will probably get a lot of people here interested. It's a very, it's a long EO, but it's a really, it's a really great and interesting one. Um, it's a very bold and ambitious one. Um, so at least read the fact sheet on the White House website if you, if you haven't. Yeah. And Thanks for that, Carol. I, I wonder, from your perspective, like you've done a really wonderful job describing from industry perspective, from the digital assets space and Web3, from an investor's perspective and or from, you know, a Web2 perspective, do you think that there are, are there the same sorts of concerns or, or how, how do you look at it with those hats on, if at all? Mm. Um, great question. Um, first, I'll flag that I'm not an investment advisor. So for anyone listening, this is not investment advice. I'll just speak to my own thesis um, for investment and kind of what we what we look at and think about at Terranet. Um, so we um, honestly, like my my firm, um, it's a very small one, and we all have a very similar um, have a pretty similar national security and cyber background. So um, so from from my perspective, I'm interested in technologies that I think are going and companies that are. Um, creating services and, but especially products and technologies that are probably going to shape some of the future of um, of money and infrastructure and and enhance cybersecurity um, for the future of digital economies. Because basically, like the world is not going to get less digital. Um, that is that is not what's going to happen. Um, instead, you have you have cities like Shanghai that are publishing their strategies for um, you know building a Web three based infrastructure, smart city, and um, and uh, like and and just every nation is is getting more and more digitized. So I think that from an investment perspective, recognize that looking at technologies, whether it's in AI, whether it's in the DLT, whether it's in cybersecurity capabilities. Um, or things like quantum security, et cetera. Like all of those are, I think those are really interesting and important areas. And that's stuff that I'm certainly looking at 
um, very closely. I think figuring out like where, like what companies are really doing it right. Um, so my own view is that those that are accounting for these policy issues and embedding them into their considerations for their business model and their operations and their auditability capabilities um, and just, and also driving in accountability. Um, that particular point, especially in the world of DeFi is not something that the industry always likes to, um, always wants to, to really embrace. Um, part of part of the point of DeFi in some cases is to avoid there being an accountable actor. Um, I understand that there's there's certainly benefits in some of those cases, like related to resilience against certain um, you know malicious cyber actors, for example, um, can can potentially face a harder time in, in changing a blockchain if it's permissionless versus permission. So there are benefits in doing some of that. Um, but the real issue is that like that infrastructure the infrastructure for digital economies if built on decentralized networks and a lot of it may be um that will not be infrastructure without necessary protections um, and regulations being built into those ecosystems so i'm really interested in looking at those that are trying to enhance capability and capacity for authorities whether it's government authorities or regulated institutions and figuring out how to get right and how to preserve the future of digital economies with democratic principles sort of built in and programmed into the tech. Um, so that's at least hopefully a helpful little bit of an overview for the way that um, that I know I'm looking um, looking at investment um, and I know how the rest of my partners at TerraNet are. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. Now for existing big tech that might not be Web3, do you think that that measures such as, you know, this executive order and its its recommendations or its it, what it has within its scope, as well as um, the Commerce Department's uh, potential uh, notice of proposed rulemaking, which we believe will be coming relating to infrastructure as a service. Do you think that this will have an impact on on big tech as well, um, like the Web two folks of the world? I know we recently um, saw, or maybe not so recently now. Um, but before uh, a number of prominent Web2 companies or traditional, you know, big tech companies met with with Congress um, to discuss AI, I know at one point there were some voices in the field saying, hey, we should put a pause on AI development. Um, do you think that that these these measures, whether the infrastructure as a service, uh, focus or this AI executive order and its coverage will, how, how will they be thinking about this? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, um, I, I do have some, and I, I do remember that letter, and uh, I'm sure everyone does uh, who was paying attention to the AI space then, because um, it was right after the launch of ChatGPT. Um, yes. As well as several other, um, I know, open AI um, sort of capabilities, but I'll, I'll say that, like, I, 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 I commend the the statements to principles and commitment towards responsible innovation that was reflected in that letter that was signed by a lot of people um, from industry, academia, um, former you know government officials, and a lot of industry folks. Um, like what you mentioned, uh, do I think that that is a practical stance to take, and that that is likely or like just capable of enforcing and driving? No. Um, what, what I would have preferred, or um, or the, the way that I feel about it, is that instead of 
saying let's pause on um, on certain types of of AI capabilities. And I guess it wasn't really just saying like pause on research and development. It was saying don't release them to the public. Um, to which I get. I just um, it it's very hard to to do that without taking a like a much harsher approach towards industry um as well as to potentially to speech and other things like a lot of tough issues come up when you want to restrict that kind of capability um by just prohibiting it um prohibiting its release in the first place so instead a sprint by big tech to figure out um and not just big tech but small tech um especially one thing that i really loved um in the executive order was there's a whole section focused on promoting innovation and competition which i think is really critical to try to make sure that the, the eos like this don't just end up um you know supporting the incumbents um and making them Absolutely. bigger so there's, yeah, there's a lot of efforts that they've um, that they put in place in the EO, um, like a pilot of the National AI Research Resource, um, which is a tool that will provide AI researchers and students some access to key AI resources and data, um, as well as expanding expanding uh, grants for AI capabilities, um, and then giving some technical assistance and resources. Um, uh, um, and encouraging the FTC to figure out what authorities that it has to promote more competition. Um, and then of course, trying to address some issues related to immigration to try to make it easier for people to stay longer and to come in um, if they're like driving and building, you know, great work on AI inside of the United States. So all those things I hope will support web to smaller companies and capabilities as well um, for the big companies, as well as for other small companies that are looking to play here. I hope that instead of asking to stop um, um, you know, supporting open um, AI because open open source capabilities often end up providing certain tools into the hands of smaller companies anyway um, to be able to allow them to iterate and innovate further. Instead, it should be a focus of standards work and and supporting um, the National Cyber Center of Excellence at NIST, um, as well as coming yeah. up with industry best practices. Standards do not get built in a vacuum. Um, they are built once industry has coalesced around best practices and standard approaches um, that they that the government then often like codifies into these guidelines and industry like is often represented in standards bodies like ISO, the International Standards Org, um, and they certainly engage uh, agencies like NIST, uh, the National Institute for Standards and Technology under the Department of Commerce. So all of these things, like there's a lot of opportunities for industry to come to play um, and to really focus on coming up with what some of those reasonable and properly responsible practices are and should be to promote the kind of reg tech um, and responsibility that's built into these, these capabilities. Like software, whether it's, whether it's DLT or whether it's AI, it will do like exactly an only what you program it to be capable of doing. So if you don't build in those kinds of protections, then, then they're not going to be embedded in the system. So I'm I'm hoping that that's what this EO sort of like basically points as an expectation to both big players, um, but also to small players, whether it be Web 2, Web 3. Um, and hopefully it will promote a lot of and galvanize a lot of interesting research and development, um, as well as market development specifically related to reg tech and, um, and the kinds of capabilities that you need to ensure responsibility in AI. Um, the same way that we've had a rise in ensuring certain types of responsibility in crypto, right? Like blockchain analytics firms 
didn't just arise <laughs> out of nowhere. They arose to like to try to help meet policy objectives that we had for blockchain, which is to try to ensure that they don't get um, that they don't get exploited by illicit actors. And in this case, leveraging the availability of like of tons of open data to be able to trace those illicit actors' transactions to support investigations. So that same kind of market like focus and evolution is really what I hope that this EO will promote. Yeah, thank, thanks for that, Carol. And you know what you were just mentioning at the end, it does make me think, you know, about the the data providers, um, Chainalysis, Elliptic, um, those those big names, um, and the important roles that they play, not just for industry, but also for many agencies um, in the U.S. As I understand it, and recently, as as we saw in the news, you know, there has been um, some dispute between. Uh, news organizations and certain data providers about um, facts and figures relating to the use of digital assets um, in illicit illicit uh, transactions, um, with certainly the data providers trying to explain their data and say, actually, um, the numbers that you may have thought, maybe they are much lower. I won't go into the specifics about that, but many listeners may be aware that um, I believe about 20% of Congress recently signed a letter um, that that cited to numbers that were in fact disputed. The goal being to to focus really on on any money laundering and counterterrorism finance um, in the context of digital assets. That makes me think. <laughs> I, I'm segueing because this is one of the things that it has. Um, been trickling through my mind while while we've been speaking is again this focus on KYC AML sanctions the like and what we saw with Tornado Cash and the disputes and the court case you know and and really um, many believe the court was struggling to find a way to find that um, in fact there was a person and in fact there was property so that Treasury would have jurisdiction. Um, to sanction tornado cash. Um, it makes me think about what was reported just in the past couple of weeks about the U.S. Treasury Department's FinCEN and the proposed rule um, that would require U.S. financial institutions to monitor and report transactions involving cryptocurrency mixing services. So this was something, um, I guess it was, uh, I believe it was October 19th, uh, of this year um, that under this rule, it said that FinCEN would exercise its authority under the seldom used section 311 of the USA Patriot Act to designate transactions with cryptocurrency mixers and mixing services as a primary money laundering concern. This, as I understand it, gives FinCEN certain special measures, but you know, I'm, I hadn't really previously been that familiar with section 311 of, of the Patriot Act Carol, is this something, given your experience at FinCEN, is this is this something that you can provide some color for? Should we be expecting, given the current climate, that we'll see more of these kinds of actions? Any thoughts? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I would be thrilled to talk about the 311, um, and including why, and I know that this is not necessarily a popular view, but I actually love this action, um, and specifically the way that FinCEN took it. I think it was just about the nicest way that FinCEN could have taken this or any other like significant action in the space. And I'll I'll explain why um, to try to help people understand, at least from my view, like like why FinCEN appears to have done it, done what they did this way. Um, and I also just to harken back to your point, I totally agree on like this this issue around transparency and explainability of tools includes things like blockchain analytics tools which often use DLT and AI <laughs> to do things like clustering analysis um, so this issue um, is coming up a lot in in whether it's in certain court cases um, right now or it's in um, or currently in the news because of just a miss what according to elliptic was a, a misciting or mischaracterization of data that they had um, related Related to some of the crypto fundraising. And I'm I'm prone to believe them that this was like just a mischaracterized figure because how easy it is for any financial figures, um, certainly, um, and then especially in the crypto world to just be sort of misunderstood or mischaracterized um, led to this misunderstanding. Um, but I also, but then I, I also take issue sometimes when the blockchain analytics companies say, well, everything that we see that we tag as illicit is the only illicit activity that's happening in crypto. Um, and that's what they testify to. And I, that, that's also something that I take issue with. Um, since that's just the info that they know for sure is illicit, um, I would point to the fact that, like, while while certain analytics firms point to figures that are a fraction of a percent of um, of financial activity being illicit, and they say that that's much less than the tradfi sector, um, FinCEN in a proposed rulemaking, and I think in 2020, at the end of 2020, um, highlighted that um, at the time they received SARS annually that that typically amounted to around 11 percent of the market cap of crypto. Of course, a SAR is just suspicious. Suspicious does not equal illicit. But I will also say that SARS are only those that report SARS. So that that, that means only the compliance space um, and only the US regulated compliance space that is you know, reporting to FinCEN. So basically, I'm not saying that it's 11% <laughs> is illicit activity, but I'm saying that it's also not 0.4%. Like it is more than that. Like there's sometimes a, a lack of understanding on both sides that like it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, like terrorism financing, probably not a hundred billion, but also not zero dollars. Um, uh, so, and, and I know that there's that there have been some numbers that were um, presented by Chainalysis and other companies too. So, I um, I hope that that just an understanding on both sides will really come together. Um, now about the 311 and why why I actually really like this action, um, which I know is not everyone's feeling. So what what it does, it designated transactions with cryptocurrency mixers and mixing services as of primary money laundering concern. Like you said, that's an authority that it has under 311 as well as 9714. Um, I know those sound really exciting, but those are basically the sections of, of the law in which they were passed, 311 from the Patriot Act, and then 9714 was from um, the... Um, I think it was the NDA um, at the beginning of 2021. It was it was under the AML Act. It was when all the, the Corporate Transparency Act and everything else passed. Um, and 9714 was another, basically kind of another version of 311 that was given to FinCEN. Um, so it, that allows them to designate things as a primary money laundering concern. They have five special measures. Um, and basically the most like important ones to consider, I think, are special measure one, which gives them the authority to impose record keeping and reporting obligations on US financial institutions 
regulations that deal with that thing that was designated, or special measure five, which is the, the typically used special measure, um, which is more like a sanction, it's a prohibition, essentially, um, to, to deal with that entity. Um, and there's some more legally speak, but that's just, a, again, layman's term um, shorthand of, of what these authorities are. Um, so this, so first I'll say that, that the designation of mixed crypto transactions um, is not, it is not something that FinCEN is asking for public input or comment on. The designation of those transactions of being a primary money laundering concern is in effect now. But FinCEN did propose via NPRM, again, notice of proposed rulemaking, um, these record keeping and reporting requirements for US financial institutions. So think like the exchanges of the world, the crypto exchanges, to report certain info about these mixed transactions and the customers involved. Um, right now, that NPRM is published. There's a 90 day notice and comment period, which very much encourage um, everyone to give comment back to FinCEN. So, like I said, I think that this is the nicest and most thoughtful way that FinCEN could have taken this action. First, they did it through notice and comment. Um, and PRM is a requirement for 311, but you know, FinCEN might have been able to try it under 9714 um, without notice and comment. I think that that would have been less likely for them to want to do. Um, and I, and I suspect that FinCEN wants uh, notice and comment specifically for this kind of action because in its designation, it has the authority to designate jurisdictions, think countries, um, you know, institute financial institutions, foreign financial institutions, or classes of transactions or types of accounts. Um, so this was its first use or designation of a um, a big class of transactions. Um, so it, I think FinCEN really wants input from the public on whether they got some of the definitions and scoping right. Um, they also did this via a 311 designation. Um, designations are used against things of concern, but they're also not things that are meant to last forever. They can go away if the risk profile changes. Um, so they did this via a designation instead of regulation, which I think that FinCEN has the authority to have done. If they wanted to do it in regulation, which would have intimated more of a stance to like stay in effect forever. Um, they also didn't have the reporting requirement go into effect immediately, which they also could have done. Um, they're awaiting input from industry to give input into this, um, which I think demonstrates a very generous commitment to wanting to get this right and account for input from the industry. Um, so I, and, and overall, the reason why I especially really like this designation is that I think that most of this is really not much new. FinCEN is just putting into an official designation and an official rule like what they have already told the industry in their advisory and guidance in 2019, where they already listed mixers as money laundering concerns and operating as unregistered MSBs. There's not a single registered mixer, um, not a single mixer that is registered with FinCEN. Um, so four years later, industry having not sufficiently evolved to address the risks um, involving mixed transactions, enter this designation is basically my interpretation of this. Um, so basically, I feel that the information that they're asking for is completely consistent with KYC expectations and best practices, as well as the types of, um, of digital indicators that FinCEN listed on page 10 of their advisory um, as especially useful to FinCEN and law enforcement. So overall, like I, uh, yes, there's some tweaking um, and some scoping that I think that I expect a lot of input on from industry to FinCEN. I very much look forward to reading uh, all the comments that are posted in the Federal Register, um, and I might give some myself. But overall, I think that this demonstrates that FinCEN did a really great job and also 
potentially is something that industry could look at as a demonstration of why there's not legislation that's needed related to these privacy technology measures. Um, inherently, if you want to give FinCEN more authority, they have authority to mitigate risk related to these privacy enhancing technologies, and this is evidence of it. So I um, I think that this action was really interesting. Um, I think that they did, they did it in a very generous, um, in a very generous and industry engaging way. So I certainly hope that folks will account for that, but for the most part, it's just putting obligations on centralized exchanges to you know, account for a risk that FinCEN had already warned them about four years ago. Wow, Carol, this has been so amazing. I mean, I could keep doing, I could keep talking with you for, um, for hours and days, and I hope you'll come back and join us again um, another time. I'm wondering, is it possible, uh, if you're comfortable, is there a way that listeners can reach you if they if they want to seek your guidance or if they have any any thoughts? Where can you be found? Oh sure. Um, well, I'm uh, I'm certainly on on LinkedIn. I know that's a very DC uh, very DC platform. So crypto LinkedIn, um, very fun community. Um, but then also um, they can reach out to me at TerraNet. Honestly, if they know you, Josh, they can um, they can find uh, they can certainly reach out to me through you. Um, or feel free to reach out to me at my own uh, email address, which is seahouse at terranetventures.com. All right. Thank you so much, Carol. This was a really an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. And I know that the listeners have to. And there you have it, our hot takes for today. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Josh from Linklaters. Join us next time on Crypto Facto with Josh Clayman.